and and did you get my email about the SPP number five due today? Lord willing, try your best. I know it was short notice, got two days and stuff, so I understand if you didn't have it done on time, that's partly my fault, but uh, it seems like most of you were able to complete the assignment, so good. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for your plan and how it magnifies and glorifies yourself. Give us a heart that truly desires that above all, and that is our supreme delight to see the Father honor the Son and to see all the glory that is associated with it in real history come to pass. May that be true and real. Um, may that be a tremendous encouragement to our hearts to see how you will have victory and how you have been setting up for that victory day after day after day of history in the past and how that is moving forward even now to the end and how you make promises that are not in vain uh, that were with details that are powerful rather because of what we learn in this book of second samuel um, give us also the strength to understand what it means that you are king through the life of david and to see that vertical tension between the capital king and the lowercase king illustrate to us what who we must be toward you so there are so many lessons, Lord, to be learned from these texts, so many applications to be done. Help us to capture them all, convict our hearts, make us malleable by the working of your Holy Spirit to learn and to live how you desire us to be. Thank you for this time. May it be edifying, encouraging. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, so here we are. And we are in the book of Second Samuel, obviously. Chapter 4. Chapter 4. And we're trying to finish off the section concerning the end of the house of Saul. What is its end? And we've kind of already established that Rechev and Ba'ana in the first, say, four verses are positioned as the new leaders of the house of Saul. They carry the weight of the entire dynasty on their shoulders. They act incredibly treacherously. Remember that there's an instant replay. Everyone remember that? It's so bad, we need an instant replay to see what's going on, how terrible they are. And so they travel all night, and here's David. They present the head of Ishbosheth to David. And this temptation that they are presenting before David sounds a lot like what? The, the Amalekites' temptation. Here, once again, you have a person, two men this time, who do not really mourn like David would mourn, who do not really care like David cares, tempting him with what? Here's your opportunity to once again seize the kingdom. And even now, it's even greater because you're so close. You've got the military superiority. You have political unification. You're the right person already demonstrated once. Now, again, why not just compromise at the very end? Why you could just fudge a little bit at the end and get it, get all the you know you've gone through so many different hoops, David. Will you falter now? And clearly, David does not. Right? He recognizes who. Verse nine. What does David say? What does he say? As the Lord lives, who has what? He's, he's delivered. He's redeemed me. He David once again 
diverts and says, this is still about capital K-I-N-G and my loyalty to him. You cannot miss that connection. Today, that's going to be reinforced a lot, okay, especially in the epilogue section of chapter, end of chapter 5 into chapter 6. That is absolutely critical. David says, I have to submit to the Lord. And our kind of, if you already had a connection of this guy with the Amalekite situation, that's confirmed by David himself, who says, when the Amalekite came before me, I killed him. How much more when you have done something even more wicked? The Amalekite, who's a foreigner, although he should have known better, killed Saul to, supposedly in the Amalekite story, if you remember, to end Saul's misery, right? But this guy was totally innocent. He was righteous in the sense that he had done nothing wrong, nothing offensive against the nation at this point of time. And yet these two men kill him in absolutely cold blood, so cold that the narrator has to put it on instant replay and slow motion. So the David commands the young men, and they kill him, cut off their hands. That's a sign that, how do you fight? With your hands. So if you're cutting off the hands and your what else? Feet. What are you showing? The total destruction of military power. It's a symbol. Saul's house has no more military power. Saul's house, in fact, is not just military powerless, it is also cursed. According to Deuteronomy 21, 22 through 23, they're cursed. <clears throat> That's why they are displayed. It is a public display before all of Israel that God has cursed this house. Uh huh. Well, two things. That's why there's this whole explanation in verse 2 um, of why you know they're from this territory which the sons of Benjamin possess, even though these guys, the original inhabitants of that land, moved, vacated, so that you wouldn't be confused. Does that make sense? That's why the whole, that whole explanation is there, is to say, no, these guys really are part of Saul's house. Even if their name seems like, well, they're not. They're not Benjaminites. They're they're, you know, beerites and stuff. No, even though they have that kind of name, they're actually still Benjaminites. This is geographical, not ethnic or political. And then on top of that, because of the, their contrast with Mephibosheth, they're the official leaders. So now you kind of even further see the significance of verses 1 through 4. Okay, further questions? Um, so this is the end of the house of Saul. He's cursed. If you follow them, you will end up in the same way. Does that make sense? God has now made it absolutely clear what he has been doing in Providence. He has brought the house of Saul to nothing. Any questions? Okay, chapter 5. Oh, question. Sorry. No, 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 no need to apologize. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, there's lots of irony, you know, because what's Paul's original name? Saul. Yeah, Saul the Benjaminite. And then there's Paul and Saul. So technically his house is like... Well, what we mean as a royal dynasty. Just a royal dynasty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there's lots of irony there. Okay. Uh, when Paul talks about him being a Benjaminite for, uh, in uh, both Philippians 3 as well as Romans 
11, um, you know, has God given up on Israel? Well, I'm a, I'm a Benjaminite, and my name was Saul, and I'm a believer. You know, can you hear the irony there? It's like, but Saul was cursed, and he was cast away. And Paul's like, but I'm here, right? Do you see, do you see a little play a little bit? So, of course, there's a remnant. You know, that's his point. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, but remember, what are the murderer, these two murderers positioned as? That's the question. And that's why verses 1 through 4 is so significant. Ishbosheth, you know, he's a loser twice over now. And, he, you know, he loses all his heart when he hears Abner is gone. That's why, remember, personal vendetta, that fulfilled, that, the ark of that fulfilled puts the house of Saul at the verge of class. Because once Abner's dead, Ishbosheth's like, I don't know what to do. I'm a loser and I don't know I, I don't have any power Abner was doing everything for me and so then the question is well who's going to take the flag who's going who's to carry the flag now does that make sense who's going who's gonna to be it and that's what's answered by verses 2 through 4 well who's going to be the representative who's going to be the king now for the, on behalf of the house of Saul option A the military guys Rechev and Ba'ana or B Mephibosheth who's lame Okay, well, that choice becomes quite obvious now, doesn't it? The military guys take over. So they are positioned in 1 through 4 as the representatives of the line. Yeah, very good. Yes? Can you talk, I mean, I know it's just six inch, but the people just explain it later. Like, what's the point of that in the middle of all this? Right. It's to show a contrast between, here are your two options. You can go with somebody in the physical lineage of Saul, but that guy is lame. He has no ability to rule because of his handicap. Does that make sense? Or, yeah, Mephibosheth. Or you can go with Rechev and Ba'ana, who are these military commanders. And even though their name doesn't seem like they're Benjaminites, they are Benjaminites, and they're really mighty. But you have to infer that it's not stated Right. Well, once again, the way narratives work, um, and think of it like a movie, right? Think of it like a movie. Here's Ishbosheth, and he's weak. And everybody in Israel, as it says in verse 1, is dismayed. They're very disturbed. Because the question they're asking is, who's going to be the leader? So then you walk to the next verse, and you have one scene, and the narrator's kind of saying, is it this guy? And then you have another scene, verse 4, well, it could be also what? This guy. You have to make sure that you're reading a narrative the way it kind of works out. And if I just showed you a bunch of pictures, I think you could have correlated it. Does this make sense? But we're just not, we're used to reading narratives like epistles, where the logic is laid out for you. Right? That's, the be- that's why everyone loves epistles, because it's so, well, not always, but it's usually really crystal clear. You know, and Paul's like, okay, here's what you need to do. Boom, 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 boom. But the problem with narrative is that it's a story. And the narrator is just throwing things out at you, hoping that you follow the trail of breadcrumbs to get to the goal. Does this make sense to everybody? And so it's a much different strategy. But because we like to watch movies, we can use our movie-watching talent and apply it into narrative, and, and you might be able to come out okay. So, yeah. There's an art of storytelling, right? There's an art of storytelling, and this, the inspired narrator is the storyteller par excellence. 
Does that help a little bit? Yeah. And I completely understand your concerns, and they're very legitimate. So, further questions? Okay. Wait, what page? Okay. No, the wrong page. Next page. Okay, we're in chapter five now. Yay. So this is, this is the conclusion. Okay, this is the conclusion or the full endorsement, as I say it in the outline. But everything now converges here. David's the right man for the job because of his person. He's the right guy because of his military powerists. He's the right guy because of national unification. He's the right guy because the other line has been completely disqualified because it's cursed. That also helps a little bit of the process of elimination. And now in contrast, and this is all in context and overview, now in contrast to the curse of Saul, you have the full endorsement here provided by God. Okay? Provided by God. And there is, there is a little bit of a topical chiasm. There is a little bit of a topical chiasm here. Notice, <clears throat> and you just jot this down. Look at it, A, B, C, D, E. Do you see those four points? No, five, sorry. I'm like, four points. Uh, five, okay? A, B, C, D, E, do you see that? Do you see that B and D are both declarations? Narrative declarations. Do you see that A is a domestic recognition when Israel makes a covenant with David. Does this make sense to everybody? And do you see letter E, international recognition? There's some parallel here. It's what we call a topical chiasm, which actually puts letter C in the middle, and letter C is what? The capital, which is what city? Jerusalem. <clears throat> That's really important because that tells you that Jerusalem is the key piece of the puzzle. Jerusalem is the key piece of the puzzle. And so you might want to put in context an overview that in addition to knowing all that's been going on and how God has been developing um, you know, the tensions and the superior of David over Saul and all these different ways that I've just reiterated over and over and over again, you have two other motifs that are also coming in. So uh, if you were in Minor Prophets with me this morning, earlier this morning, you knew I drew this whole diagram on the board with a bunch of lines and stuff. Well, this one has one too. So 2 Samuel 5 obviously is interacting with several arcs that have been coming all the way from 2 Samuel 1. For example, person, military, um, unif uh, unification. We've already talked about these kind of ideas that have been topically established in... Uh, in the narrative thus far. Those all converge here. But then you have other arcs that are coming in and that actually all unite around this capital idea. For example, Jerusalem. And that's why I had you do an SPP on it. <coughs> what other things do we have? Oh, conquest, which actually... Okay, how do, how do I want to draw this? Okay, so conquest... Conquest, which actually inter which actually intersects the Jerusalem thing, or the Jerusalem thing intersects it, and goes into there. There's a whole bunch of things that just start to converge all at once. Does this make sense to everybody? Whole bunch of different things, whole bunch of biblical ideas start to amalgamate here, and we have to cover all of them. All right, because otherwise, I was once talking to a good friend of mine, and uh, he'd been a former student and. 
just great, great, wonderful brother in the Lord. And he says, you know what, Abner? My theology is missing the significance of Jerusalem. I think that could be a problem. And I wrote back and I said, yeah, that'd be a big one. Like, really? He's like, how bad? I'm like, well, that's like eating the whole of a donut. (laughs) And he's like, you mean a donut hole? No, the whole of the donut. He's like, the whole donut? No, the whole of the donut. It's like, oh. (laughs) Jerusalem is so critical. If you haven't been able to see it already, some of you are like, Oh, I get that. That's funny. You know, I go, <laughs> I'm going to use that on somebody. Okay, go ahead. So the, uh, <laughs> do you see how everything is starting to merge here? And it's all merging in one city. Does that make sense? So if, if you miss the significance of this city, you're going to miss all these different things. It's just the way it works. And they're all compacted into a very small amount of time, not time, text, and I'm going to have to help draw it out for you, okay? And it won't be hard. You'll see it, and you'll see like, oh, I see that, you know, and you can underline it. Oh, I see that, and you can circle it or whatever. You know, it's going to be quite clear. But there's a reason why in eschatology you hear about Jerusalem all over the place. Mount Zion, there's a remnant. On Zion, there's going to be conquest. From Zion, you know, saviors will go forth, all this kind of stuff. Why? Because Zion, Jerusalem, city of David, any of those titles, which are all, by the way, distinctive and significant, even though they refer to the same place, um, all these theological themes converge physically. And it is very, very important to know. Okay, so this is like eating. If you understand this, then you can actually put the donut around the hole. Okay, and eschatology will make a lot more sense and the significance of it, not just what happens, but what is it trying to tell you about God and what do what will the nations and Israel learn through this and worship God forever for? Okay, any questions thus far? All right, good. So now I'm paranoid, like someone. With the parting of the Red Sea, I can't just look straight, uh-huh. Wait, but isn't all that stuff like the person, the unification, like military power, that's all we're doing <coughs> in Hebron right now, right? Well, so yeah, it is a little bit at Hebron, but you notice that the discussion about God moving Hebron and all that kind of stuff was mainly military in the context. Remember? Machanaim versus Hebron position of situating in Israel of strength versus running away across the river. Remember that? That's mainly military. Hebron is a military location. As well as yeah, there's going to be some interplay about personal vendetta. It's going to facilitate it. But then everything, for some reason, and actually Kim, you bring up a very good point. Well, it would be very convenient. David just leaves the capital where? Hebron. It's like, why move? Right? You like to move? You know, you, I mean, no. David has to move everything, all the administration and everything, to this other place. And he has to take the city over. So it's like, well, why don't we just have it easy? And just hang out at Hebron. It's a nice place. I got my castle here, you know, no, palace here or whatever. And we can just chill. I don't want to move. But David moves. And you have to ask the question, what? Why? which then puts all that together. Okay? 
Okay, so we aren't, any other questions? Okay. Uh, chapter 5, verse 1. All the tribes come together at Hebron. And you're thinking, one, he moves it to Jerusalem. Yeah, it could be for political unification, but what's the problem? If they're all willing to already meet at where? Hebron. Do you see, do you see the whole point? Then it's not totally necessary to move. Does this make sense to everybody? It's not absolutely necessary to move because they're already willing to meet there. That's the first thing that should clue you in here. Behold, we are your bone and your flesh. Flesh and bone. What does that sound like? Yeah, Genesis with Adam and Eve, right? You know, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, and they're talking about absolute intimacy. They're all part of one, in a, in a sense, what? One one body, right? The king and his people are essentially one body. Hey, 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 don't miss this. Body of Christ, yes? Why? Why is that? Because we're all in Christ. Why? Why are we in Christ? Because he's our king, right? Where was that set up? Second Samuel, right? Does that make sense to everybody? You know, he could have said we're all one thing or one blob or one... Well, why one body? Because of the unity between king and his people. And you, are, you already start to see a little bit of what we call corporate solidarity. In other words, how the king can represent his people. And you already saw that in the past with how... Those two guys, Rachev and Ba'ana, were cursed, and who was cursed also along with them? The entire dynasty, right? This is all fitting together. We're bone of your bone, flesh of your flesh. Oh, by the way, and uh, that's why marriage in Ephesians 5 is correlated with what? Christ in the church, right? Because they're all talking about unity. And that's why late before that, obviously, in Hosea and other passages, God's relationship with Israel is considered what? his relationship with a wife. Does that make sense to everybody? Do you see where all these metaphors are coming from? They're not just like, oh, where did they go? Oh, this is interesting. Why not? No, there's a reason for every metaphor. Does this make sense to everybody? There's a reason for every metaphor, and you can't miss that. And here is one thing that happens that they say underlying their unity that just spreads out everywhere throughout the text. They recognize... And this is all in official covenant language. Uh, covenants can uh, include the following pieces of information. You might want to write this down. They include a background section uh, about the relationship between suzerain, which is the king, and a vassal, which is the servant. <coughs> uh, they, they include, like, before they were king and servant, their background. That also, therefore, includes history. Any pertinent historical data that leads up to this point um, then, establishment of the terms and conditions, or the nature of the relationship. And then there's some way, some mark of officiality, whether that be by witnesses, or by some kind of official statement, uh, authoritative binding oaths, etc., etc., etc. These are all parts of the covenant. Notice how it flows here. Behold, we are your bone and flesh. This is the background 
and kind of the before we were ever you're ever our king and we were ever your servants we're family we're one with you and here's the history that leads up to this even though Saul was king who was the real king you were you led Israel out and you have the divine promises and you will be my what according to God you will what shepherd yeah shepherd my people good Significance? David is the shepherd. He's a shepherd of sheep physically, but he's also a shepherd of Israel. That's a declaration of king. This starts to play out in biblical history big time. Culminating with, yes, Kim? No, Oh, you got it. Because shepherd, it's not just saying, ooh, I'm such a caring, loving guy. You know, like, I mean, it's true. He is very caring and he's very loving, and we should take it that way to be sure, but that's not all he's saying. He's saying what? I am your king. You need to submit to me. I'm, the, I'm David. See that? But it's more than that because first usage of shepherd is actually in Genesis at the very end, about uh, 48, chapter 48, and um, God is actually recognized to be shepherd. So here's what happens. See, we haven't even gotten here yet, but a lot of things are starting to converge. Because we're getting really close to the Davidic Covenant, and once you get closer to the Davidic Covenant, all these ideas start to just pop up uh, big time. It gets complicated. But, okay, Genesis 48, God is king, Yahweh is king, and he is shepherd, according to Jacob. But God says to David in 2 Samuel 5, or it's recorded in 2 Samuel 5, you're the shepherd, David. You're the shepherd. And, and then David says, oh, wait a minute. Actually, to be precise, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. So you have a capital shepherd, and I'll just do shep for short, and then you have a lowercase what? Shepherd. Because David is a shepherd, which parallels my whole point of capital K-I-N-G and what? lowercase k-i-n-g. I I didn't make this up, guys. It's real. So, then, you get all the way over, and you have to skip a bunch, but it's okay, because I'm just trying to show you big landmarks. Ezekiel 34, and God says, I looked around for any shepherds. What is he looking around for? Human kings. Does this make sense to everybody? Human kings that will rule over Israel. Does this make sense to everybody? And he says, I didn't find anybody. So I became their shepherd. Right? So that means now, God is once again canceling out this human shepherd and becoming the one shepherd again. And then you get to John 10. And then what happens? Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. He's not just saying I'm king. He's saying what? I'm God which is exactly the point of John, isn't it? Doesn't that make sense? And do you understand why people get a little mad now? It's not like, oh, you're a caring guy. We don't like you. you know? No, it's like, I'm God. You need to bow to me right now because I'm also your king. Let's just put this in really blatant terms. But I'm good. You know? And everyone says, oh, we hate you. You know, how could you say something like that? And really, I've actually de-amplified it because if you study Ezekiel 34, it's like the future is on this guy's shoulders. I mean, 
everything is there and he's the one who inaugurates the new covenant he's and he will crush all those who disobey him he's going to you know destroy the enemies and all these kinds of things and then jesus says yep i'm that guy i'm god and everyone's just like oh mm-hmm. uh david wrote psalms i mean whenever I, you cross look at the other passages you look at psalm 78 uh <coughs> start at 68 is that funny? all right but he chose the tribe of judah mount zion which he loved and built his sanctuary like the heights like the earth which he has founded forever he also chose david his servant and took him from the sheepfolds from the care of the ewes from the second lands he brought him the shepherd to shepherd Jacob his people and Israel his inheritance. So he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them with his skillful hands. Yeah. David right there just talks about himself in like third person, like a wrestler or something. Like what's up with that? Yeah. Well, see, once again, you start to see. I don't know about the wrestler thing because I, I don't. But I'm assuming. I I mean, sure, sounds good to me. So. <laughs> I'll Wikipedia it later. So the, but no, that's that's. Do you see that? You probably wouldn't have picked up on that before, would you have? Until this, well, I hope you would have, but maybe not. But this class should make you pick up on stuff like that. Does that make sense? Psalm seventy-eight. This walk through a biblical history. What you have is God saying, "Do you know Israel? What saves you? It's." David, whom I chose to be your shepherd. David recognizes and Asaph recognizes that, hey, David is the man. And David's not trying to be, and Asaph's not trying to be, and and the psalmists in general are not trying to be arrogant. Does that make sense? They're stating the what? The facts, the truth. God assigned David this task. But... And here's where I run out of space on the board. <clears throat> Remember what I said from the very beginning. Second Samuel will teach you that you need a what kind of king? Divine. Divine. Good. Don't forget that. Right? You can't forget anything in this class. It's not allowed. Uh, I don't test you on it, but you need to remember it. Okay? You need to inscribe it. Um, you need a divine king. Right? That's the cry right about here, at the end of Second Samuel, there is a need for a divine king. And David writes the Psalms with that hope. Do you see that? And then what happens in Ezekiel 34? Hope is promised and granted in John 10. Do you see how that works? Do you see how everything is just setting up for another thing and there's this massive escalating, cascading, whatever, however you want to put it, domino effect all the way to John chapter 10. And beyond, by the way. Uh, But we don't have time to go through that. So, see, one word like that should just trigger something because you just start to realize how God is carefully and providentially molding all of this. And we haven't even gotten to Jerusalem thing yet. We're still working on David. But this is important because this is a covenant. Do you see that? In a sense, the Davidic covenant comes in two parts. I don't know if we always think about it this way, but it's true. The people make a covenant with David. Does that make sense? In light of God's promises. There is what you might call 
And we always call Davidic covenant officially the one between God and David. Yes, that is the very important one. This is the official DC. When we talk about Davidic covenant, that's what we're talking about. But don't forget, there's an equally defining covenant between David and who? Israel. We can call this PDC, pre-Davidic covenant or something, or mini-Davidic covenant, or horizontal Davidic covenant, or IDC, Israel Davidic Covenant, whatever you want to call it. No one has a name for this, but it's very important because they made a covenant. And that covenant designates the role of David relative to Israel. He's their shepherd. He's their shepherd. That is the paradigm, the metaphor, the nature of what it means to be a king. It means to provide and guide and sustain and supply and be faithful to a people. Protect them. All the things that a shepherd does, that's what a king ought to be. But David in the end knows, I, I'm not that way. And, I, and the only reason I can function is because the Lord is what? My shepherd. By the way, just throw it out there. The Lord is my shepherd, yes? The Lord said to my Lord. Do you start to see these parallels in the Psalter? Why? Because David just keeps realizing, oh, well, you got king-king relationship. Capital K-N-G, lowercase k-n-g relationship is capitulated and recapitulated in the Psalms over and 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 over again. And it happens so often, and this is where you have messianic hope within the Psalms a lot of times. And sometimes it's just in one line but it's in these kind of parallelisms that run. Um, and yeah, you're just going to have to look all that up. Uh-huh. Time period-wise? Yeah, <coughs> yeah we, we don't have a total time period, like total set time period, but um, I would say it was after his wilderness wanderings, but before probably before Absalom would be my personal guess. That's my personal guess. I don't mind if it's after, after Absalom, frankly, but I do mind if it's pre-Davidic covenant. Because if it's pre-Davidic covenant, where do you get the shepherd thing from? Nowhere. You know, Or pre, pre-Davidic covenant. You know what I'm talking about. pre Second Samuel 5. If it's in First Samuel that he wrote this, we have a problem. Yeah, but if it's after 2 Samuel, then there's actually a very rich metaphor um, that ties in something else, which actually does tie in Ezekiel, right? Roger, where are you? Yeah. Hi, good, good to see you. So what happens in Ezekiel before Ezekiel 34? Where, where do they go? Starts with an E. Don't go to get nervous, just tell me. <laughs> E-X. Exile. Yeah, good. <laughs> no, 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 no. Event, event. And so the watchman first says in Ezekiel 1, bye-bye. You know, because what, what do watchmen do? On, they warn you. Okay, I'll draw, I'll draw a comic. So here's watchman. And here, that's Ezekiel. Ezekiel's supposed to be a watchman. And he's looking out and he sees God saying, I'm going to blow you up. And so he says, God, bad for you. You know? And then, because you're going into exile, and that's, you know, is God with us? Yeah. Yeah, he is. Bye-bye. You know, 
That's why. But then in 33, you get a watchman again, and then God saves you. So that's much better. And they're returning from exile. That's in chapter 33, right? That happens right here. Well, what happens um, with this illustration is that Jacob has said, I've been wandering around all this time. I've been wandering around all this time, and the shepherd guided me home. See that? And then David also has been what? Wandering around, and he guides his people what? Home. But who guided David to be home? The Lord is my shepherd, right? And then if you combine that with uh, 1 Kings 6, that happens like uh, there. Anyone remember what happens in 1 Kings 6? <clears throat> they build the temple, remember that? And that's 480 years after the Exodus. Exodus. Yeah, that's how we get like 1444. We're all happy about that. Well, yeah, it's because, you know, 1446, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And, and yeah, it's good. It's wonderful. Now we have a date. But that's not the reason it's there. It's to show you what? When the temple's built, the Exodus officially ends. The wilderness wandering period officially what? Ends. Yahweh, the good shepherd, has brought his other shepherd, Solomon, to build a official home to end the wanderings because just like the good shepherd here brought Jacob home and brought David home, he brings Israel home. And then so here, when he sees, when the good shepherd is coming back, what is he going to do with the people in exile? He's going to bring them home. See that? Home, home. Do you see how that all starts to merge together? Okay, good. Wow, that was really a long lecture on one word. So we're going to go back. Any questions on that? Does this make sense to everybody? Um, yeah, you just you just need to really take comfort in that sometimes, right? Like I said, is a shepherd a caring person? Does that emphasize God's care? Yeah. Namely what? He'll bring you home. He'll bring you home. Okay? He'll take care of you. Because that's what a king does. Okay. Uh, no further questions on that word? That's good. That's good. So, <clears throat> see, very important, right? Very important. And it's intentionally important because it's a covenant. And covenants define things. So that's, that's all under uh, letter A. But letter B tells you, the if <laughs> you're like, where do I put that? On the page. See, I have it. No, I don't, but that's okay. <laughs> You're like, how do you have it? Uh, I don't. You just, you just write it somewhere, right? And you can write on the back. Oh, but you don't have a back. Do you have a back? Uh, we're trying to be green. It's costing you your education. So the, it's okay. Just try your best to remember everything, okay? Because you really can't forget it, because you'll need to know all that for later. So... Uh, official declaration. This is the narrator's, the inspired narrator's declaration that David is now officially the king. Okay, That's why it's an official declaration. He writes it in the book. Just like in the, you read this and it reads kind of like the book of Kings, doesn't it? At a such and such a time when he's such and such years old, he reigns for this many years. Does that make sense to everybody? And you think, oh, what's the big deal? No, it's because now it's official. He's locked into the position of king. Yeah, he was called king before, but in the historical record, 
He is now officially by covenant and charter king, the real king of all Israel. This is when it's made. Very epic statement. And that brings us to the capital issue. Because now, forget about what I drew on the bottom of the board, now we're back here. So talk to me. What does your commentary say about Jerusalem? Oh yeah, that's good too. Oh, we will. We will. I promise. Yeah. Don't worry about that. But I'm, this is all introduction. Like the SPP is to introduce us to this whole idea. And then we'll get into the text itself. Yeah. So no, no, no. I totally understand. You're like, what is up with that? So yeah, I will. Yeah. Speak to me. Yeah. That's good. That's important. Yes, so, conquest issue, right? It's one of the most important strongholds in the south. Do you start to see some convergence over here? Good. Uh, you, then you. Uh-huh. Um, I was just reading about the Jebusites. Yeah, Jebusites. What's up They're with them? Out, yeah. Jebusite problem. It's like the termites. No, don't do that. Uh, because they're people, not, not bugs. You, then you. Uh-huh. Uh, well, I would remind similar to that the commentator brought us back to Genesis 15 and how they were the last ones listed of which Abraham would eventually like take over. I can't remember the verbiage. Yes, because that's part of Abrahamic promise. So now you start to see some complications coming. Uh-huh. Continue? Anyone? Yes, your turn. Oh, um, because it was such a central location. Yes. Uh, more unity. Than... Boosting unity because of centralized location. Yeah. That's a common answer, and it's true. I was going to write centralized answer, centralized location. Anything else? Just off that, the one I read said it was pretty close to the border of Benjamin Precisely. That's why it's at the Ben Ben and Jerry BJ you know border. Yes, it is exactly right there. Yep. You can spit into the capital of Saul actually from parts of Jerusalem. Okay. Uh huh. Um, the I read said that um, there'd be like less of like a stumbling block because Hebron was associated with Judah, but then like Jerusalem was more neutral. Right. But you said, like, verse 1 kind of that up a little Well, it does and it doesn't. It shows that everyone's willing to have Hebron be it. But David needs it to be different for some reasons. This could be a reason, a factor within that. So it's still legitimate. It just can't be the sole reason, because that doesn't make sense. Does that make sense? There's got to be more. Uh-huh. Uh, that one of the reasons for his moving is because now... Right, it's like a peace offering, right? Yep, you got it. You're on, you're on the right track here. More. Anybody more? 
Yeah, place of worship. This is really funny. Along those lines, what, what famous event happens around Jerusalem? You know it. Yeah. Genesis 22. Sacrifice. Well, obviously, he wasn't, right? We all know that. So, attempted sacrifice, like attempted homicide, attempted sacrifice of Isaac. Yes. Yeah. That happened around Jerusalem, too. So, now you have a lot of things going on. And now you got to put them all together. But, uh, anything else? That's true. Yeah. And we can't ignore that. Because if you don't have water, what happens in Israel? Yeah, that's right. Exactly. That's the answer to this class, remember? So just always say that. So yeah, water supply. And by the way, uh, you know, if we're going to really be starting to be technical, it's, it's by, not at, but by the water, uh, what is it called? Water... No. Um, well, yeah, no, 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 but it's the water divide, but it's not called divide. Oh, I can't believe I just blinked. When water falls, it falls one side or falls, huh? Watershed around. Watershed. It's right by the watershed. Thank you. Yeah, like the continental divide. Yes, yes, yes. It's the same idea. It's just Israel's version, right? The watershed. Yeah. Yeah, it, it does serve as an official international statement when you move your capital. That's true. So it does have international effect. Uh-huh. Anything else? Yeah. It provided a great defense system because there were no Yeah, that's right. We'll put that here too. This could be called like geological stuff, okay? So defense. Oh yeah, you want a, you want a defensible capital, right? That's why kind of Washington D.C. makes me laugh sometimes. It makes me a little nervous too, because it's like it's like on the coast, you know. I'm like, well, <laughs> it's like the tar- if you come from the east side, it's like okay, it's all over, you know. So I don't know, but I'm sure it's really well defended. That's don't just, get me wrong. That's just the public, yeah, they can move. So yeah, no, I agree with you. But you know, if you're in the olden days, you wouldn't put your capital right up front. Like it would be dumb to have your capital in Israel by the Sea of Galilee. Because it's always going to get taken over like that. You, know, you just don't do that. Nowadays, you can't because, you know, yeah, we can strike from anywhere or whatever. So I understand that. Anything else? All right. There's a lot of stuff here, isn't it? And uh, there, it's actually all right. It is all correct. And I can show you from the text how it is all right, how it is all correct. David does choose Jerusalem as a city because it is along the border. So there is a political unification that occurs. Hence, this ark comes into play. Does that make sense to everybody? It also is militarily defensible. So you start to have a military thing come into play, which is further expanded because you have this Jebusite problem and they're supposed to die, right? So David conquers that city, which should have been conquered what? In whose day? Joshua's day. Joshua's day. 
So he shows that he's better than who? Joshua. See how that works? Military arc coming in. And as a person, well, you have Melchizedek, Abraham, now who? David. All coming into play. All in one place. One move solidifies a lot. Not to mention that because of Jerusalem's rich history in biblical theology and redemptive history, um, you have a massive thrust of information that happens uh, because Jerusalem now is the capital. Because now Jerusalem is the capital. There is this motif of Abrahamic promises, of sacrifice, of atonement, um, of forgiveness, of fulfillment, all coming around, of testing and ultimate testing and faith, all coming in Jerusalem. And that's why Jerusalem becomes the national icon for Israel. Not only because it's a capital, but because of all the things that have happened there and what it stands for. Does that make sense? Um, remember, remember the Alamo? Why? What, what's the history of that? They originally lost there, so then at the following battle, what did they do? That's their cry. Because of what happened there. If Jerusalem I forget you, may my hand forget its skill. Why? Because so much has already taken place there before David, and now with David bringing it in, it solidifies so much more in place. It is a highly theologically significant city. Highly theologically significant city. In fact, even today, it is perhaps the most controversial city in the world. Um, you do one thing wrong in Jerusalem, you could have a world war. You do one thing wrong in Santa Clarita, you'll have a Valencian yelling at you. You know, that's it. You know, you might not be able to go to Chick-fil-A or something. You know, that, that's about all that happens. You move a ladder in, in Jerusalem nowadays, in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, you could cause World War III. I mean, literally, the Crimean War was fought over that building. I mean, that was like the straw that broke the camel's back. And there's so much, I mean, okay, like you, you nuke Valencia, everyone's sad and it's tragedy and it makes good fun on 24. You throw one firecracker on the Temple Mount, you will not believe what will happen, right? Because it's just so politically tense. Uh, people ask, what's your favorite site? And a lot of people say Jerusalem. I don't know, Jerusalem to me is just too stressful. So. I just like going out into the hill country and going where there's nobody there <laughs> and spending some time. But Jerusalem's intense. And there's a lot of things there. Uh, Ibexers will tell you, what's the hardest unit? It's Jerusalem unit. Because every place you walk, it's like, okay, here are 27 facts that you have to know about this, and here's how it ties to that, and no, 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 Okay, next step. Okay, here, no, 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 no. You know, and then here's another 27 facts you have to know. And then this walkway. Oh, yeah, look at the floor, and there's these rocks here, you know, by Shabon's shop, and this is about this, and then you're just like, oh, so much stuff, you know. Yeah, and it's crowded and noisy and everything. Jerusalem's jam-packed. You cannot underestimate its theological significance. It's been postured like that. It is the place 
where many promises now have converged and many thoughts. Is it any accident that Jesus dies outside of Jerusalem? Of course not. There are no such thing as accidents. Of course not. The king being killed by his own people outside of Jerusalem to pay for their sins like this in the past so that they would believe in him, all of this has already been associated with Jerusalem anyways. There are no accidents. Okay? Does that make sense to everybody? Yeah. What's the significance of Melchizedek? Oh, yeah. Thanks for reminding me. And where does David get it from? Right? That should be your second question. <clears throat> Who is this guy? He comes from Salem, which is Jerusalem. And he just pops out of nowhere in Genesis 14. And, you know, Abraham's like, I want a battle! You know, oh, good job. I'm Melchizedek. Good to meet you. Wow, you're really cool. You're a priest of the Most High God, and you're going to teach me about theology. Yeah, that's what I, my job is. I'm really cool. And um, that's Melchizedek. My king is a righteous king, king of righteousness. Uh, he establishes the nature of what a true king ought to be, a true king of God ought to be. Namely, one who is both priest and one who is also king. Does this make sense to everybody? And so when David puts himself, and this is where it gets really tricky and really a lot of tension, David captures his capital, and so what is he posturing himself as? The next Melchizedek. So what does he do? He writes about it in Psalm. 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 Give you a hint. It's over a hundred and less than a million. It's over a hundred and nine, but less than a hundred eleven. Hundred ten. Good. <laughs> I'll tell you a true story. One time I said that in a on a quiz in Old Testament survey class. I said, hint. Over 109, less than 111, and people were like, oh! <laughs> like they were really struggling to get it. And I'm, I'm thinking, oh no. And so I was like, okay, I'll give another extra question. What's Daniel's Hebrew name? Hint, it's like, what time is the five o'clock news? <laughs> and people were like, how is this fair? And I'm thinking, ah. Oh. Daniel's Hebrew name, by the way, is what? Daniel. So, yeah. <laughs> like, what time is the five o'clock news? Okay, anyway. Uh, some of you are like, whoa, that just went. <laughs> so where were, okay, back to Melchizedek. Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, your priest forever in the reign, in the order of Melchizedek. Where did David get that from? David got that from, from the fact that he knew he had to go back to Jerusalem and he knew that he had to go back to Jerusalem to put himself in the posture of this because this is the prototypical king. This is what it was always meant to be. This is how God had introduced what a good king of Yahweh would look like. Does that make sense to everybody? And so there was going to be an order that had to surpass that. And so David tries at times to look like a priest, but never assumes that position fully. He looks like one, but he's not one. Does that make sense? But he knows, because it takes one to know one in the book of Psalms, what the real one will be like in the end. And so he says he has to be in the order of Melchizedek. That's the only way, that's the only template that we have of the ultimate king. Hebrews comes along and says, yep, Jesus can do that. See, here's how. And he puts all the pieces together. Does that make sense to everybody? 
But that all begins with this takeover. Well, that actually all begins with Genesis 14, but then linking into what? Taking over Jerusalem. Speak to me. Um, wouldn't he be taking the role of priest and king, which was uh, prohibited? Yeah. Well, Melchizedek or David? David. David. Yeah, that's why I say he looks like a priest. But is he, like Saul condemned for doing things of... Pre- yeah. And David, I would argue, David doesn't ever cross the line. He looks like one. This is, this is where it gets dangerous, right? It's like he looks like an elephant, smells like an elephant, but he's not. How, how, how does he do that? Yeah, well, I'll show you, maybe, <laughs> later. But he doesn't cross the line. Okay, uh-huh. Yeah, that's always the next question. Do you think Melchizedek is pre-incarnate Christ? And that's a totally legitimate question. I would say no, I don't think so. Here, here are some decent reasons why. One, and this is kind of like the low blow, how can Jesus be in the order of himself? Have you ever thought about that? Like, that doesn't even make sense. He's in the order of Melchizedek because Jesus is like Melchizedek. Does that make sense? You can't... Otherwise, you're just saying, well, look, Jesus has to be in the order of Jesus. Well, no kidding. Duh. Yeah. That's like, Abner has to be Abner. True. You know, it's just not going to logically cohere. Melchizedek is introduced, and the book of Hebrews might sound to you like, oh, well, Melchizedek seems like he's just incarnate and divine because he doesn't have father and mother and all these kinds of things. But you have to compare and contrast that with other passages like Ezra chapter 7 where when you meet a priest for the first time, you always hear about his mom and dad. You always have a genealogy record. Have you ever seen the movie Knight's Tale or something? I haven't. I just read my Wikipedia. But then my friend showed me this clip of Knight's Tale and it was so funny because what do you have to do? You have to prove that you're a real knight. Right? So they have to announce your genealogy. He's like, this is exactly what you're talking about. I'm like, ooh, that's good. That's real good. What movie is this again? Okay. So then I wrote about it. And then, uh, you know, and I, I was like, oh, this is really good. That's what a priest always has to do. You're a priest? Prove it to me. Tell me your mom. Tell me your dad. Tell me your genealogy. But Melchizedek comes on, and Abraham's like, oh, you're a king priest. He goes, yeah. And what's missing? The genealogy, your mom, your dad, those are not your requirements to be priest. Does that make sense? That's the book of Hebrews' point. He's interfacing with that kind of Jewish mentality, but when you read it more from a Western standpoint, you're like, oh, well, if he doesn't have mom, he doesn't have a dad, you know, all these kinds of things, then he must be God. But that's not what he's trying to get at. Does this make sense? The omission in Genesis 14 is designed so that you understand it's not the same way the Levitical priest system works. That's not the Melchizedekian priest system. So does that answer your question a little bit? Yeah. Uh-huh. Do you think he did have mother He did, but it's, there's no need for it to be mentioned in the text because it's not required. It's not required for proof that he's a legitimate priest. It's by God's declaration that he is. That's, that's where Hebrews gets because of another requirement that comes into play. Not the physical one, but a spiritual one. Because God chooses him to be so. Yeah. Further questions? Okay. So how does that put us? What time do we get out here? 35? Okay. Oh. 
was supposed to get through chapter six. It's okay. Um, how to synthesize this. To put it in a nutshell, and this is all like context and overview, it's not, I haven't even explained six through nine yet. Okay? Um, and you're like, well, I ran out of space. Oh, it's okay. Uh, Jerusalem is a choice that amplifies all the arcs that we've seen before. David as the right person. He's posturing himself in the role of Melchizedek. David as a military leader of a great military. Yes, because he takes over, does a new conquest, all that kind of stuff. David as unification of the nation. Yes, because of how he is putting, putting this on the Benjaminite Judean border and how that's going to have peace and it's more localized in Israel and it's going to have international effects and all these kinds of things. Yes, all of those things are true. And that's all happening with this move from Hebron to Jerusalem. But don't forget, there are bigger theological things at stake as well. Namely, putting front and center Abrahamic promises and Abrahamic events like Genesis 22. The very issue which converges with Melchizedek and him being a king and a priest. Does that make sense to everybody? Those are all now put front and center because of this one location. That's all that's theologically and topically occurring as we read through this text. But Samuel wants us to concentrate on certain factors. And let's look at chapter six, 5, verse 6 and following. King went up to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land. Here is once again the motif of conquest. The motif of conquest. They're going up against Jerusalem just like they were supposed to in Joshua's day. They were supposed to kill the Jebusites at this time, but they didn't. So the conquest motif is built into the text. And here are the people that reject David as a person. You can't come in here. The blind and lame will turn you away. Because they were thinking David couldn't enter. And what's this blind and lame business? Um, well, who, do you want, who don't you want in your army? Blind people and lame people, right? It's like, which way is the battle? Uh, your face, your, don't, turn the gun around. You know, like, uh, you know, and like, let's go. Uh, can you pick me up? You know, the, you know, it's, you just cannot have this. And they're useful in other ways, by the way. They're just not for the military. And that's okay. The point of the, Jeru- the Jebusites is what? Even those who are unfit for military service can do what to you? can totally make, will totally repel you. We don't even need to use our army to fight you. We can use, our, we can use the people that aren't in the army to fight you. The low life, so to speak, in the ancient Near Eastern mind. Because they didn't think that David could ever enter the stronghold. David is an incapable person. He doesn't have military power. Okay, that's what they're, do you see those two motifs kind of contrasted here by the mentality of the Jebusites. Nevertheless, Nevertheless, what happens? David captures the stronghold of Zion. That is the city of David. So what you have here is an emphasis on contrary to their belief, the Jebusites believe that David wasn't a good guy, wasn't a good leader. He is. So that's a vindication of the person. And contrary to the idea that David didn't have enough military power to conquer the land or to conquer the city, he does. So that's a vindication of what? Military. Does this make sense to everybody? Okay, but there's more. Zion. Zion is a theological name. It is associated with promise. 
it is associated with promise. City of David is a royal title to the city. There's lots of ways you can name cities. Did you know Valencia's other name was Awesome Town? Did you know that? I see it on the sign every time I drive home. Welcome to Valencia, Awesome Town. And we are arrogant and foolish. So the, yeah, I'm like, oh Lord, I'm glad I don't live here, you know. (laughs) I live in arrogant land, you know. But you can name towns everything you want. This is Jerusalem, the conquest of peace, but this is also Zion, the place of God's promise. It's also a royal city, the city of David. And in that statement, Zion. So we start to work out some promises, like Abrahamic promise, right? Melchizedekian kind of motifs, all that kind of stuff coming in. But it's the city of David, which means that it's the royal capital. Does that make sense? And David now officially assigns this city the term of royal capital, and that's unification. Does this make sense to everybody? This is my capital. I chose this because it is centralized. It does have a good military feel. It's the city of David now. Does this make sense to everybody? What's going on here? Unification is occurring. Yes, ma'am. Yes. Yes. Um, there's a little. There's more complications with that too. I mean, because like New Jerusalem, New Zion, seems like you know when we think of heaven, we think like we're going to go up in the sky, you know, and we're in the clouds and kind of stuff. But Revelation seems to provide us a picture that yes, the earth will be destroyed, but then there's going to be a what? New heavens and new earth. And it's new, but it's a real heaven and earth. Like we have a heaven and earth now. And Zion, Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem is going to come in. Does that make sense? And now God will have his abode with men. So, yeah, it's compared with heaven, but eventually heaven comes to the new heaven and new earth. Does that make sense to everybody? You know, because I always thought when I was a kid, you know, like I'm just going to be like angels in the sky and have a white robe with a harp and, you know. And or guitar or something, and and uh, play, not playing violin because that would not be heaven. So the uh, uh, you know something like that, and you know, and then you you read the Bible and you're like, oh, this is, I mean, similar, right? We're in the presence of the Lord, but it's not just the spiritual realm; it's a very physical place. Does that make sense? It's a new heavens, new earth, and Jerusalem comes in. Read it for yourself, Revelation, um, at the very end, obviously. So. Okay, where were I? Where was I? Uh, oh yeah, so David can't enter here. He captures the city. And yes, to answer your original question, divine favor. A- amen, absolutely. That's the nature of Zion. That's why it always appears like that in prophecy. Or not always, but oftentimes it appears like that in prophecy. Because why are they saved on Mount Zion? Because God has favor. Because God is committed to keep his promises there. Does that make sense? Did you have a question? Yes. Uh, I just wanted to add. Yeah. Quickly. Yeah. Uh, last time, I know, Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I thought a lot about that. I was driving my truck, and I'm like, um, you know, I, I had a Marine buddy. He he killed an Iraqi just on, uh, he probably did it, so I'm going to kill him. And he went to jail for a long time, and, I, and we all fought against that, but we lost. And uh, so I was just thinking, why would I want to toast Joe Happy here? 
And, and I started looking more and more into it. In 1 Chronicles 11, 4 through 9, uh, I thought it, it just brought Jesus right back into play in the fact of King David playing that role as he says, hey, Joab, you were wrong, you were murdered. And Jesus so many times to murderers says, well, good, you want to murder? Well, I'm going to pour my grace upon you, and then you're going to repent, uh, rip off your clothes like Joab did, and do what King David would tell him, even though that must have been real humbling. I mean, he could have tried to fight against David or, or tried to band his troops somehow. Right. But instead he repented. He did what he was supposed to do. And then guess what? Because he did repent, he had an opportunity. And he got that opportunity, First Chronicles 11 would say, and uh, just like, you know, if a sinner were to repent, he, he does come back and he has an opportunity uh, to, in this case... Um, regain his leadership back, right. restore his, his uh, assemble his uh, headship over the troops, and striking down the first Jesuit. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And so, yeah, he gets that honor, right? And it's because David spares his life. Yeah. Then you're right. David is a gracious king. He's a just king, but he's a gracious king, right? And he tries to find the appropriate balance between that. So no, that's a great observation. Yeah, that's a good observation. And you're right. First Chronicles 11 provides us a little more detail about how it exactly all went down in Jerusalem. And it gives a lot of honor to Joab uh, because Joab is one of David's heroes. This is like the good, I always say Chronicles is the good parts version. You know, it's where all the glory is displayed. So no, that's a really great observation. Good for thinking about it. Appreciate that. Um, And actually, along those lines, now that we are in verse 8, um, the, the strategy of David here is once again seen. And his military tactfulness and his military ability is once again highlighted. They're supposed to go through the Tsinor. And eventually, we learn it like uh, Thomas mentioned about Chronicles. Um, that Saul, or excuse me, Joab is the one that does it. But what is the Tsinor? Uh, some, you know, there's a lot of kind of talk about it, but it is, I think, a water tunnel. It is kind of a water shaft. And the question that everyone wants to know is, is it Warren's shaft? If you've ever been to Israel and you're going down Hezekiah's tunnel, uh, you kind of pass by this really narrow corridor on your left-hand side, and, and you look down, and that's Warren's shaft. It's just a shaft where you could basically lower down a bucket. Does that make sense? And, and you're, you climb up that thing, and that's really hard. Because think about it. Saul has to, or not Saul, why do I keep saying Saul? Joab has to climb up with what? Military gear, right? I mean, he's not just going to walk up and just kill people with his bare hands. You know, a whole bunch of guards there. Yeah, it's not like the ninja movies, okay? So, and this place is really narrow. I mean, the guy, there was one archaeologist that tried to get through, and he showed us how he did it. And he had to hold a flashlight in his mouth and climb with, you know, no gear. I mean, it was all just him climbing by himself because, I mean, at times you just see he, he was just totally compressed against the wall. So it's like, how in the world does this guy get through? But he did. What's the flashlight? Because it's possible to climb without yeah. Um, the reason is because the, the shaft isn't straight. 
And so his point was, if you're going to do this relatively quietly, because the shaft goes like this. The shaft isn't totally vertical like this, it's like this. So you're climbing up this way, and actually there's a vertical area here. So you're climbing up this way, and then if you, if you don't have a light, what are you going to do? You're going to really hit hard here, and you're going to go ow, or your helmet is going to go clang. That's, that was the archaeologist's point. But here's the additional problem, and here's what he was saying. You wouldn't probably have a light because one, it would give your position away, right? Like there's like, there's a light coming out of the hole, you know, like that's not normal. And then, and then two, um, you don't have flashlights back then. What do you have? Yeah, which could easily what? Burn you. <laughs> so you probably want to do that. But he said, he personally said, he couldn't feel his way through without the light because it's slippery. It's all water. And so to find out where the ledges were and to hold it, it takes a lot of skill. I, I, I've done it personally. It's, it's just, it just it, you trust your feeling. You're right. slower and actually makes you more quiet. Yeah, and you're the military guy, and the archaeologist isn't, right? And that proves the point. This is military skill, right? Not anyone can do this kind of trick. Does that make sense to everybody? Not anyone can just go up on his own. And that was the counter rebuttal, because the guy's like, it's impossible to get through Warren Shaft. And they're like, well, you're not military trained, right? Get, get like a military guy who's climbed before and has the right kind of gear. You probably could do it, but that's the whole point. You gotta have somebody skilled. Once again, that reinforces what? David, where Joshua, who was a good guy, don't get me wrong, I really like Joshua. And that generation of Israelites, as a military entity, they did a lot of good, but they didn't do enough. Does that make sense? They didn't have enough to get the job done. Who does? David. David and his men. Does this make sense to everybody? This reinforces so clearly for the most important city, the one that they could never take in all of history, but they needed to take for all history to continue. David has it. David has what it takes to get the job done. It's a very hard task, but David has what it takes to get the job done. Does that make sense to everybody, what's going on here? This is why things are so clear. Let me finish this up really quickly. David solidifies the entire city to the point where now, <clears throat> before they were saying, hey, our blind and lame, they could take you out, David. Now David teases them back and says what? All you guys are are the what? blind and lame. That's all you guys are. You're just the blind and the lame because I have secured the city so well that no one can come back in. And so David called the stronghold, lived in the stronghold, called it the city of David, built all around from it the Milo and inwards. He absolutely secures the capital, makes it militarily strong, and that, with Zion and all these other images, starts to launch a bunch of other things about history forward, and it, let's put it this way, right? Um, you know, one ring to rule them all, remember that? And then every, but there's all these things that are connected to it, right? Like Arwen, remember that, the elvish girl? I actually watched this and read it too, in my defense. Um, and there's this one moment where, in the movie, 
um, Elrond says to Aragorn, now Arwen's fate is tied to the fate of the ring. Do you see? It's just like this collective pull. Now, because of everything that's coming forward, everything is tied to what? David and his city. And the fate of the world, Abrahamic promises, military conquest, kingly glory, all these things are now tied to the king and his city. Does that make sense? That's what's happening right here. Uh huh. I think so. I think so. That's why he might have, in uh, the battle with Goliath, cuts off his head and sends it to Jerusalem. And you're like, why? Well, option A is that he kept Goliath's head preserved somehow and then eventually brings it to Jerusalem. That's okay. Or maybe he did what? Sent it as, I'm going to take you guys out. That's my goal in life, to take you out, just like I killed the giant. Like a warning shot. Does that make sense to everybody? That's probably a little more natural reading. Yeah. Yeah, when he's yeah when he's a little kid, you know, swinging that slingshot. Otherwise, it really makes no sense, right? Because are you really going to be able to preserve this guy's head for so long? I think he was. He really was. That's why he's a man after God's own heart. By the way, one more contrast for you. <clears throat> this capital exceeds whose capital? Guess Saul's. Cross reference the end of Judges. Gibeah of Saul is a bad place. It's where rape occurs and murder occurs and chopping up a girl occurs, okay? It's just bad. It's a bad motif compared to what? This. This is much better, right? This is much more glorious. Saul's capital proves that he's a failure. This is what the real deal is. Was there a question? Nope. We're all good. Let's go.